Welcome to the OA Light a Candle Meeting Podcast. Visit our website at oalaig.org where you will find several speaker feeds with over 800 speaker files, forms for ordering CDs, and a place to donate to keep the special service active. The opinions expressed on the Light a Candle Podcast are those of individual OA members and do not re- represent OA as a whole. I would now like to introduce our speaker for tonight, Colleen. Hi, everybody. Uh, my name is Colleen. I'm a compulsive reader. Hi, Colleen. And I first want to say thank you, David, for asking me to be of service. It is a, a very much an honor. Um, anytime I get asked to be of service in any way, uh, it has saved my life. Uh, to qualify, I've been abstinent. Uh, let's see. My day of abstinence is August 4th, 2002. So, uh, this past August, I celebrated 15 years of abstinence. Thank you. Um, my top weight that I know was 311 pounds. I've been maintaining about 160 or so pound weight loss for probably 13 some odd years. So, another huge miracle. Um, and uh, I did uh, have some pictures going around, and uh, some of you have heard me speak before. I always bring these. These are my size 26, no, 24, sorry. <laughs> they, I wouldn't buy a size 26. I uh, 24 jeans that um, were very tight when I first came in, but uh, like I said, I wouldn't buy a size 26. And uh, one of the sponsors I had early on had told me to keep um, a piece of my clothing, she said, because if you're ever too tired to work your program, they're waiting for you. <laughs> so they serve as a reminder of, of where I come from. Um, because sometimes, believe it or not, there are moments when I forget what that was like, um, which is a huge miracle. Um, you know, when I when I came into these rooms, um, I was just under 30, and I was in a lot of pain. Um, I had gotten to the point physically where I could no longer elude or, or keep up the illusion that I really wasn't that big. Um, I often thought I had like reverse anorexia because I would look in the mirror and I wouldn't see like the large body that was reflected back in the mirror. I would see like a thinner version. But my my whole life, I pretty much just went up. There was no like up and down and stuff like that. So I just really had a, a very tweaked sense of, of how much space I was taking up. And the irony, of course, is that I, I thought I was supposed to be hidden and quiet and, you know, just keep it down. Don't say anything. Don't draw attention to yourself. And yet I was like literally walking around screaming, somebody noticed me. Um and, you know, did draw my fair attention of negative feedback from people who think for some reason that just because you're overweight, like, that, that's okay then to, like, completely lambast you in public or whatever. And I had my share of humiliating experiences like that growing up. None of that deterred me from eating whatsoever. Um, it probably drove me to eating, um, but I didn't, I didn't connect the two. Um, I didn't understand that me feeding off this food, which was my drug, in particular sugar and fat and flour and all those lovely things, um, was the way that I was dealing with my life. Um, So I didn't, all I knew is that there was that, which I was very unconscious about, and then there was the fact that I was fat. 
And so what I did was I fueled a lot of my energy towards, like, everything would be fine if I just wasn't fat, as if my body was not something I was actually in, because I really didn't spend a lot of time being present in it, because that would require me to be aware of sensations, that would require me aware of feelings, that would require me to be aware of all kinds of things that were just off limits. I had no tolerance for them. I, I There was never a model for me of, like, how to deal with that sort of information. There was a lot of really screwy crap that happened when I was little that made it super confusing and just very sort of distorted sense of reality and what was mine and what was theirs and and all kinds of things. And we all come from, well, I shouldn't say all. A number of people in 12-step rooms I found come from very um, confusing and very horrific sometimes and just unhealthy spaces. Um, And those early experiences pretty much shaped the parameters in which I thought I need something to deal with this. And so, you know, at three years old or whatever, like, um, I wasn't pulling out bottles of whiskey from the liquor cabinet, but, like, I got cupcakes. You know, those work. Ice cream cones are awesome. The Carvel shop was down the road from where we lived on Long Island. You know, like, and it worked. It just worked. The sugar really worked. That's my main, um, my main line, alcoholic food. And, um, you know, for me, my abstinence consists in, in two pieces. I consider it one is that, so my abstinence is three meals a day, nothing in between, two optional snacks. A uh, snack is defined as a piece of fruit or serving of fruit. And um, and then I have a list of alcoholic foods from which I abstain. Because even if I'm only eating three meals, if I'm eating sugar in those meals, I'm screwed. Like, there's no no consciousness attached to that. And then, if I'm not eating sugar, but I'm eating all day long, that's another way to stay unconscious. So, for me, there has to be boundaries around my food, and there has to be specific foods that, for me, are off limits, because I simply don't know how to eat them like a normal person. Um, You know, it talks in the big book about how um, we've lost the power of choice, it says in drink, um, but eating. Like, I've lost the power of choice when it comes to something with high concentrations of sugar, because I don't know what a portion of that is. I've lost the power of choice when it comes to pizza, because, like, what the whole thing's not the one slice for me. Like, I just, you know. I mean, I remember the first time I found a pizza shop that had those slices that were almost like the size of pizza. I thought, these are my people. <laughs> like, this is a piece of pizza. You know, none of this, like, but I want four pieces, which you can't stay in my house if you want four pieces, because then I'd be shamed for things. You don't, know, you don't need any more, you know. Um, and so, you know, again, just a very disproportionate understanding that this was not really what was getting me through my life, but yet it was. So why would that be the problem? So when I came into these rooms and you said, the only requirement is desire to stop eating compulsively, it's a good thing you didn't go around and ask me that because I would have been like, no, I don't want to stop eating compulsively. I didn't know that was the problem. The problem is that I'm fat. (laughs) Like the body is the problem, you know. And it's like, no, my body was just wearing my experience for me, you know. And a big part of my recovery has, has been about restoring that relationship with my body, you know. I mean, starting with not eating things that are harmful to me. Um, or eating in a way that's harmful to me. And and then also just about how I think about and how I talk to myself in regards to my body. Like, I've lost the privilege of being like, ugh, 
that can't fly anymore. I can't let that sort of thing slide. That's the kind of stuff that has to go into my 10th step. Those are the sort of things that I need to be aware of because that will then lead me down to the road to all of a sudden I'm into 7-Eleven to get some tea and the Susie Q cupcakes are like singing and dancing like, come in, you know, like come home, you know, and it's like that's a really good idea, you know, or I'm having a, a difficult, I need to have a difficult conversation, what I perceive as a difficult conversation with someone that I work with or that I'm in a relationship with and then all of a sudden like all kinds of other things are like screaming my name or like I go upstairs in the cafe at work and the tater tots are having a freaking party you know and it's like okay you know I'll just walk by I feel like that that scene a beautiful mind where he just ignores the crazy people that he can't see anymore or he's trying not to see so these are all things that, that I learned by living and moving the 12 steps. And, you know, I didn't know I had a voice. At least I didn't know I had one that mattered. And I also didn't know that the most important thing was that it mattered to me. I didn't understand that when I say no, it means no. And it's a complete sentence. I didn't know that, like, when I say, you know what, that doesn't work for me, but thank you, that that was enough. I didn't mean to give you a million explanations or come up with a dozen excuses or whatever. And I learned how not to lie. Because I spent a lot of time lying to myself. Like, it doesn't really bother me that much. It's not a big deal. You know, eat and eat and eat. Because when you've got this nice pillow of comfort and satiation around you all the time, like, I don't actually have to deal with the after effects of what I feel when I don't use my voice. Um, and whenever I'm in a space where I can hear myself get quiet, food did a really good job of keeping me quiet. My mouth is occupied. I'm not saying a lot. You know, if I'm mentally checked out because I'm in such a food fog, I'm not really clear about what it is that I need or what it is that I want or the fact that it's okay for me to have those needs or wants regardless of whether or not they're going to get met. And... I can't tell you exactly how I began to understand these things by working the steps, but I know that by having a sponsor who gave me one-on-one -on -one attention, she said, this is what I've done, and, and clearly it seemed to have worked for her, at least from what she told me, and as far as I could tell, she wasn't lying. All I knew is that, like, step by step, by following the path that she, had out, she set out for me, which was laid out in the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous, I began to see and experience these things in my life where I didn't need that food. It doesn't mean that it wasn't uncomfortable and it wasn't painful when I first started eating. I thought I was going to die. I, I just did. I thought, for sure, I'm going to die. Like, if I don't get to have that, I'm going to die. And I had to sit in that feeling, and I had to call people, and I had to get out the pen and the paper, and I had to do all those things because what I got was that abstinence was the most important thing without exception. If I don't have that, if I don't have that anchor, forget it. I'm not going to be able to really connect to the power greater than myself. I'm not going to be able to show up in my life. I'm going to be constantly looking for that next hit. Because the reason, you know, and it takes a lot of food to maintain being over 300 pounds. It's no joke. That's a lot of time. That's a lot of energy, you know. And so no wonder I was exhausted all the time. I still remember early on in abstinence or I think um, when I had reached a healthy body weight. And I was running errands and I was like, wow, this is so much easier than I ever remember it being. And it dawned on me, well, yeah, because when you're carting around a 300 plus pound body in and out of the car, for several hours, it's exhausting. 
But, like, I didn't know that's what it was. I just thought, this is really annoying, you know? Like, I, you know, I learned how to have language around things. I learned what feelings were. I think we think funny, we have a relationship with interesting, with interesting relationship with feelings. Um, I heard it described really well in an AA meeting I went to one time. The girl said that, like, you don't, like, they're like children. You don't put them in the trunk, and you don't put them in the driver's seat, you know? But that's what I want. I want to wait to feel before I want to do something, and then I want to not feel it, you know? And it doesn't really work that way, you know? I have to trust. If I believe in this power greater than myself that created me, I seem to have come equipped with these things. So they must serve some sort of purpose. And like everything else in my life, they must, um, to be used well, I need to keep them in alignment with that which is the thing that I turn my will and my life over to. And that's a very humbling prospect because I spent a lot of my life thinking I'm supposed to know how to do this. I shouldn't ask questions. Um, and I, I still remember very early on, I'd have conversations with my sponsor and she'd go, Hmm, well, that's interesting. And I was like, wait, she didn't just like take that like lock, stock and barrel. Like, Oh yeah, it's totally true. And I was like, Oh, like she's not buying this. But yet in my own head, I was always buying my own bullshit. Like, Oh yeah, I think you don't like me. It must totally be true. Maybe you're having a bad day. Maybe it has nothing to do with me, you know. Most of the time it does have nothing to do with me. And and I I recently um, had an experience of been working on, in this group process with these people. And there was a lot of, like, a number of people were bothered by this one particular individual. And what I saw happen in front of me was this interesting um, phenomenon that we have as human beings of, like, we think if... If there's other people who can buy into the same idea, like, then, then it's definitely true. But what I've learned by working these steps is that if I'm bothered by somebody, I'm the one who's bothered. They really do not have the kind of free time to sit around and think about ways to make my life miserable. They're just not doing it. Okay? And I realize there may be an exception to that rule somewhere, but I'm pretty sure I haven't come across it. And so for me, I always have to look back on that. And while in the beginning, because I'd be on the phone with my sponsor, and she'd be like, every time we're bothered by a person, place, or thing, you know, it doesn't step there's something wrong with you. I spent my whole life thinking something's wrong with me. So I just transitioned that a little bit and say that I'm the one who has the issue. And, you know, I was like, every time? She's like, every time. And I was like, oh, my God. You know, and it was really annoying because it was like, then I couldn't be constantly blaming you for whatever it was. You know, your attitude or the look you gave me or the way you treated me or whatever. And, but what I got after a time, after that constant practice of doing that, um, was that it then made me someone who had power in my life because if it's if everything in my life is dependent upon what you're doing or not doing then I'm at your mercy all the time talk about powerless now I can't change you but I can open up and ask God to change my perspective on this you know sometimes the most powerful prayer that I say to God is like show me how to see this differently please (laughs) because the way I'm seeing it right now is really painful and I can't handle this pain you know so, you know, when I got in, um, I, I mean, my, my history of eating is not unlike most people's. I ate lots of crappy food <laughs> all the time. Um, 
I don't remember if I had anything out of a garbage can, but you know what? When you're pretty choked out, there's a lot of shit you can do without even really being aware of it. So that's entirely possible. I've eaten off the floor, you know, and just... Um, I still follow this three-second rule. I should say, Eden, I have done that, but, you know, three-second rule, that's all I got to say. Um, I'm still a compulsive overeater, for sure. But the reality is, by living the steps, I don't have to live my life at the mercy of this disease. Um, I get to take a step back and observe it. To me, one of the most powerful things that abstinence has given me is that moment of pause. That moment of pause between that thought and that action. I always thought one just went right into the other. I didn't know, like, oh, I can take a step back, I can take a deep breath, and I can go, huh, isn't that interesting? Thanks for sharing. I did a lot of that. I still do that in my head. Blah, blah, blah. Thanks for sharing. Interesting thought. Mm-hmm. And to get that it's just a thought, and I don't actually have to do anything with it, you know? Um, just because I have a feeling doesn't even have to do anything with it. It doesn't have to be fixed. It's just an experience. It's just an indication of something. You know, I don't have to make it wrong, which is a lot of what I did. And then I would need something to keep that down, to keep myself from feeling it again. So that's when I would start to eat. So, um, you know, when I came in and and I established an abstinence, um, I began to get boundaries around my food. I had no clue how to have boundaries in my life, but strangely, when I got boundaries around my food, boundaries in my life showed up. Because I learned how to put parameters around things. Um, and then as we began to work the steps, and I've had a number of different sponsors in my life. Um, I'm not one of these people have the same sponsor. Um, and I just think that different people have been, I've been guided to different people on my path, and it's a continual evolving path. The same way as the understanding of my higher power. Like I came in with, with some understanding of a higher power, but, but it was also high power in which I excluded from a certain part of my life because I was like, I got this. Clearly, I had not gotten it. But I thought I did. You know, I thought, well, what does God care about what I eat? There's starving children all over the world. Like, clearly God's got bigger things to worry about. But when I finally got that, if I was willing to turn my will and my life over to this God that cared for me, because it says that in the steps. It says, over to the care of God. I was like, well, then that God should probably be something that I believe cares about me and not just the parts of me that I care about because that's, that would be me being God. So this God must be have the potential to care about the parts of me that I want nothing to do with. And, and just to begin to like sit, what, what does that look like? You know, it means learning how to be a little bit more forgiving of myself and forgiving of other people. Um, Letting go of an idea that, like, I'm sure that this is what it is and this is how it's going to work out. And being open to the possibility that something different might occur that did not occur to me in my own head. And then I can get something from connecting with other people and sharing my truth and, and... and then be able to sit down and actually listen to what you're saying instead of thinking I know what your problem is and what you need to do to fix it. I mean, I remember early on in meetings, I'd be sitting in meetings, and somebody get up and they're all upset about whatever it was, and they're sharing, and I'm thinking, really? Like, you're upset about this? <laughs> you know, well, all you need to do is this, this, and this. Now, I had mind enough not to go up to that person and say, hey, 
you know, all you need to do is this. But I just started to notice that, like, over and over again. I thought, oh, well, that must be what it's like when I'm up there. And I'm like, you know, and I'm, like, spilling my guts or whatever. And you all clap, which I thought was hilarious. And, and, and then, like, there's this potential solution. But it's not until I'm ready to see it that I'm going to do anything with it. Because even if somebody else were to tell me. I mean, I had a long history my whole life people giving me advice on things. Like, how many people be like, sweetheart, if you just do this, you just do that. And I was like, if I could do that, I would do that. I'm not an idiot, you know. And thank you so much for reminding me that I'm living in a 300-pound body in which people ridicule left and right, and they think there's no problem with it. You think I don't know how painful it is to be where I am right now? You think that I wouldn't do something different if I could? I have no clue. And I was on this constant, like, automatic pilot, and my life was insane, you know, I managed strangely to hold down a job. I had some friends. Relationships were kind of like, mm, I don't even know if you call them relationships with the opposite sex. And my relationships were, with family was basically based on the idea, as long as I was who I thought they wanted me to be, everything was great. So in recovery, I learned how to do things like speak up for myself and to be in the space of being around my family and be who I really am instead of who they need or, or or want me to be and they have their own discomfort with that and I'm not responsible for that I'm only responsible for continuing to forgive them for whatever it is I think they may or may not have done and to continue to show up in a way that honors both them and me and it's not about right or wrong it's simply about what is the best element of peace here and a lot of that is uncomfortable, and it's not a straight line. Like, oh, now there's this, and now we're going to be great for, like, ever. You know, relationships, including the one with my higher power, are in constant flux all the time. You know, and it, and it began to dawn on me after a while, like, oh, that's why you have to breathe in and breathe out all the time. It's not like you just go, and then, like, you're good. You know, and then, like, you have enough oxygen to last you. Well, I don't know how long I can hold my breath, but certainly not long enough to last my entire life. So maybe that tells me something about how I'm supposed to show up in the world. And I have to keep breathing in and breathing out. Breathing in and breathing It's really annoying, you know that? It's probably when my brain does it automatically for me, so I don't have to stop and think about it all the time. But if I begin to look at that in my life, and to me, that's what the steps teach me, you know. It teaches me, like in step 10, it says continue to take personal inventory. When we're wrong, promptly admit it. Sought through prayer and meditation. There's no found. It's, I must be seeking, you know. And when I make those early decisions on, and even those are on a daily basis. You know, there's a, a quote from... Um, C.S. Lewis is one of my favorite spiritual authors, and he says that relying on God must begin again every day as though nothing has been done before, you know, because I never know how God's going to show up in my life. I remember early on in absence, and I've told this story before, but I swear to God, it was an experience where I had committed this meal, and I said I was going to have this. This is back when I ate this stuff because I, I could still afford to thank you. So um, this bag of, of snack Cheetos or whatever. I don't need this anymore. That doesn't work for me. So, but at the time, it was still something that did. And um, they didn't have any in the grocery store. <coughs> and I finally went, okay, fine. I'm just, I can't, because I knew if I bought the big bag, forget it. I'd have the whole thing. 
And I'm not kidding. I was in the checkout line, and in the magazines was a snack bag of the Cheetos. And I went, huh, cool. Thanks, God. So I was able to keep my commitment. I was able to eat whatever it was I said I was going to eat. And, you know, okay, so God's not going to show up as a bag of Cheetos today. If God shows up as a bag of Cheetos, I can tell you right now, today, that's not God. Okay? So God has evolved into a lot of other things. Okay? Thank God. <laughs> Sorry. Um. <laughs> Anyways, so um, I realize that I want to wrap up in case people have any questions. I have no idea what I just said, so hopefully something was helpful. And thank you for letting me share. So I guess we open up for questions? Yeah. Okay, anybody have any questions? Yes. Um, you talked about your, um, your group plan a bit, and mm-hmm. I wanted to learn how that Sure. Super fast. How my food plan evolves. Um, what my sponsor had laid out for me, she said there was a distinction between my abstinence and my food plan. So basically the, the abstinence was the parameters around, meaning I eat a certain number of times a day, and then there are certain alcohol, alcoholic foods from which I abstain. Um, and then the food plan is like what I actually ate. And so she said to me, you know, if you want to lose weight, which is clearly what I wanted to do at that point, um, she said your, your food needs to be weight losing. So I can't be eating a bunch of weight-maintaining or weight-gaining meals and be like, oh, yeah, no problem, and getting on the scale going, oh, my God, what's happening? So I had to learn how to, like, weigh and measure stuff and things like that. So um, as far as how it evolved over time um, was that I had to keep pulling things away. And, again, every time I thought I was going to die. Um, but, you know, I got some outside guidance from, like, how to do that and where to, like, begin to make changes and things like because I had no clue. You know, but, but a big part of it was having to be in the reality, like to weigh and measure certain things and like read packages and labels and stuff like that so that I had a sense of what I was putting in my body. So, mm-hmm. yeah. Okay. Oh, you want to know if I started doing the, the, the stuff with the food? It was uh, before or after working the steps. It was all at the same time because I simply could not have done it without working the steps at the same time. You know, um, yeah, that just wouldn't have worked well for me. Yes. Hi, Colleen. Please, I was wondering if you could talk about your daily spiritual practice. Sure, my daily spiritual practice. Um, when I started working with the sponsor who saved my life, um, she was like my second or third sponsor. She she said you have to pray and meditate every day. I don't care what it looks like or whatever, but you have to do it. And so that began the process of every single day that I have a prayer and meditation time. And it started as two minutes of meditation, and then I would write a letter to God. Um, and so now the meditation time is expanded, um, but the I still write a letter, um, and I usually read some program or other sort of spiritual literature. Um, and... Um, like I said, spend some time in meditation. And then I'm, I'm always in conversation with God throughout the day. Um, sometimes in the middle of the day, I'll, I'll pause and just, you know, like get into nature or whatever, or go outside in the sun. And, um, and then at the end of the day, I do some kind of gratitude list or, um, or a full 10th step, depending on the case. And I, um, part of, for me, part of my spiritual practice is that I commit my food the night before to my sponsor. Um, because for me, being accountable to that is to keep me in alignment with what I feel like my high power wants for my life. Um, so those would be some of the essential pieces. Mm-hmm. Yes? So you, so good to see mm-hmm. um, you touched on the spiritual axiom mm-hmm. when, when I'm disturbed or something wrong with me. 
change the words a little mm-hmm. bit is my issue. Mm-hmm. Do you have a, kind of a practice that you use to work through that, like when you're disturbed, the issues with you, to work through whatever that issue is? Mm-hmm. Sure. Um, so you asked if I have a way of working through an issue when I'm disturbed by someone. Um, well, I mean, there, it's not like one certain thing that I do necessarily. Um, it usually involves talking to someone, like my sponsor, about it. Writing is very helpful because that helps me get, you know, I think like I can figure it out in my head. I never can. Like I've got to get it out on paper, even if it should be like, I've been person picking off, you know, or whatever. <laughs> I need to get that part out first. Um, and and then I'm able to look at it a little bit better. Um and depending on the on the circumstance, sometimes I'm really able to see like, oh right, this is reminding me of this, and I often find it's connected to something that has nothing to do with the person in the situation. It's something within me that that gets triggered or whatever. I hate that term, but you know, um, comes up for me. And so then I get to look at: Do I need to just practice forgiveness? Is there any kind of um, extension I need to make to that person? Maybe there's something I can do to be more open because perhaps I presented in the situation in such a way that that precipitated that friction or something like that. Sometimes I just got to go, well, clearly they've got some stuff going on and I'm deciding to sign on to it. Maybe I just shouldn't do that anymore. And my sponsor and I now talk a lot about just standing back and observing like how someone behaves and then like noticing if they're that way with other people because I'm always like quick to think it's just with me. And just kind of observe, and not not get sucked into it. So, mm-hmm. yes. Thank you. Mm-hmm. I, um, I'm wondering throughout the years what your experience has been like with trusting yourself. My experience of trusting myself through the years. Um, well, uh, you know, I never really thought about it that much. Um, it's it's a slow process. Um, you know, I mean, they, they talk about, I mean, I, I talked about how, you know, I can't trust my, my own head. Um, and it, so it becomes first an element of, like, I really just need to get that, like, especially early on in abstinence because I was still drugged, essentially. Like, a lot of the crap that was going through my head really was not very reliable. So the process of getting to a point where I can begin to distinguish a little bit is came from working with a sponsor and other fellows and, like, checking things out. Like, here's what I was thinking about this. What do you think about this? Um, and then getting a sense from there. Um, and then also as my relationship with my higher power grew, um, and I began to see ways in my life that, like, okay, look, like, you're making some good decisions for yourself. So maybe you can begin to trust, you know, um, your thoughts on this or whatever. And and then the other piece of it was an element of, I'm not sure quite how to explain this, but um, getting, before even getting to the quote-unquote trust place is more just like um, an acknowledgement of whatever it was I was thinking or feeling as not being bad or wrong or good or bad. Like just getting like, oh, this is what I'm thinking, this is what I'm feeling. And my immediate reaction always was like, there's something wrong with me. Like, I'm messed up. This isn't cool. I'm, you know, I'm defunct somehow or whatever. Um, and so before jumping onto that bandwagon, just going like, hmm, isn't it interesting? I'm kind of becoming an observer of myself. And then I can begin to gauge like, okay, what, what is really um, something worth trusting or not? 
So I don't know if that answers your question. But, mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay, how did I respond to people's comments about my body as it was changing? Um, <laughs> basically, what my sponsor said to me, she said, Colleen, what other th- people think about you is none of your business. So that just became a mantra. Um, you know, on moments when I was getting compliments, it was great. I mean, I had people who said things like, I used to teach middle school, and I had this one teacher goes, you lost one of them. And I was like, thanks. Uh-huh. I was like, is that a compliment or whatever? There were other people who had issues with the fact that I lost weight, and they'd say, like, oh, and I'm putting it on. And I was like, I don't even know what to say about that. That's your <laughs> issue. Um, so... I learned that it really had a lot more to do with wherever that person was that made them say stuff. Um, and so it was really about me knowing what was going on with me and what, what I was okay with or not okay with and was I in line with what I said I was trying to do and things like that. Oh, was it? Okay, sorry. Okay, sorry. Um, that's all the time we have. Thank you very much.